I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, with the news about Jason Pierre-Paul, who's the next man up for the Bucs at that position? And why hasn't pass rusher been a priority for Bucs GM Jason Light in the NFL draft? Matt Duffy's rehab. It's not going well. Is it time to end the Duffy experiment for the Tampa Bay Rays? Your mailbag questions answered 100% correctly today on this edition of Sports Day Tampa Bay. I'm Rick Stroud of the Tampa Bay Times along with producer Steve Versnick. Hey, if you'd like to sponsor this podcast, we've got lots of new ways you can do that. Our advertisers have enjoyed great success, and so will you. So for information, all you have to do is this. Contact us on Twitter at SportsDayTV, or you can reach me at NFL Stroud, or my email address is rstroud at tampabay.com. We'd love to have you guys be part of our team. All right, Steve, we got lots of mailbag questions and uh, good ones, as a matter of fact, about the Bucks and the Rays and others. Let's get started. All right, well, Ellis asked a question, and you said you'd expound upon it on Twitter, so we'll lead off with this one. He says, after the marathon of press conferences with the coaches last week, would you say that Bruce Arians' staff seems more aware of what the players can and cannot do than past regimes, or are they just saying all the right things? Boy, it was a marathon, too. I mean, I I was exhausted in a good way as a journalist where, you know, every one of those 28 assistants, <laughs> not including Bruce, which makes it a staff of 29. Mind you, in the regular season, Steve, they only have 53 players. So if I'm, my math is correct, that's more than – what, uh, probably more than a coach every two players? Yeah, I think something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess if you included the uh, practice squad, it's, it's just about one coach for every two players. But um, it was fascinating. You know, this, this is a, a really good staff, um, and it's a large staff, which means they'll get plenty of, you know, plenty of individualized uh, instruction, and it's out of the box as well. You have three African-American you know, coordinators, um, you have two female uh, full-time assistant coaches, um, you have, you know, Roger Bannister, who is a, a speed coach, you have Chris Bonio, who is a specialist coach, not a special teams coach, but a guy who actually helped the kickers. As far as them understanding what these players can do, it's it's really hard for them to, to know exactly until they have them on the grass. I mean, they they have watched film, clearly, lots of it, Sometimes, in some cases, going back almost to the beginning of some of their careers, and that's the position coach's job primarily, and then the coordinators, you know, come in and do that as well. Um, but for example, like you, you really don't know what an offensive lineman can do. Uh, you got a feel for the running backs a little bit, but you're changing the system both on offense and on defense. So, you know, these are players that were left over from another scheme, a scheme that they drafted and developed uh, that is unlike yours. There's some carryover at some positions and others there's not. You know, some guys, we've talked about it, you know, a guy like Noah Spence who was drafted into a 4-3 um, would have to have been, you know, a defensive end in a 4-3 uh, and, and at best a designated pass rusher on, on sort of, you know, passing downs, third and long or that sort of thing. But in this defense, Noah Spence could – 
presumably play a lot of downs, nearly every down, if, if he was good enough. And that's because he's going to play off the ball at times. He doesn't have to be in a three-point stance. He can be a stand-up outside linebacker pass rusher. And, you know, you can use him either to rush the passer or you can use his athleticism and have him drop in coverage at times. So I think they're just starting to get a feel for, for what guys can do um, based on their film work. They're in phase two of the off-season workout program, which means that, you know, they can uh, go onto the field with the coaches and the position coaches, but they're still not together as a group except for, uh, you know, that three-day mini camp they had before the draft. That was the first time that they could be out there together as a team and go through some drills. We got OTAs coming up here um, in just about a, a what is it like another week or so they'll begin those and those are organized team activities which are sort of like practices you know in in shorts and helmets and uh, a little better idea where you can actually compete against each other in a team setting with your position coaches and the entire team together and then there will be a mini camp uh, beginning which is mandatory for the veterans and the rookies uh, which will be sometime in June and that'll wrap up the off-season program with that so they have a lot of evaluation to do and trying to figure out, you know, where the players fit, especially in their schemes. But I will say this about Bruce Arians coaching staff that I think Bucks fans should be happy about because there's obviously been a lot of coaching changes with this team going back, you know, with John Gruden getting fired after the 2000 and what was it, uh, eight season uh, when they went nine and nine and seven. Um, you've had a lot of staffs and you've had you know, a, a range of types of coaches, right? You had Raheem Morris, um, who retained some guys from John Gruden's staff. Uh, then you had Lovey Smith, who came in here and completely, you know, pretty much changed all the coaches. And then you had Greg Shiano, or, uh, yeah, after, no, you had Greg Shiano after, after Raheem, I'm sorry, which was a completely different staff. And then you had Lovey, who changed it even more. Um, and then Dirk, you know, after that. Uh, there was some carryover, obviously, and now you're changing again, but changing not only the coaches but the schemes, especially from a 4-3 to a 3-4. But this particular staff has has guys that have either played for Bruce Arians. Most of them have coached with Bruce Arians. In some cases, they played and coached for Bruce Arians. You know, you have guys like Todd Bowles who played for him at Temple, um, guys like Keith Armstrong, same thing, and then have coached with him at, at various stops for a long time. And the good thing about that is is that they know exactly what Bruce Arians wants. They know how he wants it done. Uh, and they have, they have gotten along together as a staff and have won together as a staff. And they have won in places that you don't normally win, you know, like Arizona. And they won right away. So this staff has confidence. They know what to do, how to work together. And that's not to be ignored. I mean, I think it's, you know, it's difficult sometimes when you bring in coaches from all over that haven't worked together. There's a lot of egos in that room. There's a lot of ideas. But in this case, they all know exactly how they're going to build this thing. And I think that uh, it's probably, and I've said this, probably the best overall coaching staff that the Bucks have had, maybe going back uh, to what, you know, John Gruden more or less inherited, especially on the defensive side, and certainly Tony Dungy's staff, uh, which was very, very good and, and wound up including a bunch of uh, future head coaches as well. Michael asked, the Bucks have seemingly gone all in on the idea that coaching can take this team over the hump. What if they're wrong? If the Bucks have another last place season, will the reload suddenly become a rebuild? It's a great question. Um, I don't think they hire Bruce Arians at 66 years old if they think it's a reload. 
So, yeah, if they lose, does that change their mentality? Not entirely. It's still a young football team in many areas. Um, I think what the big question will be is, you know, does it change the quarterback position? You know, and, and, and that's why Bruce Arians is here. Um, we don't know what kind of year that, obviously, that Jameis Winston's going to have. Assuming he stays healthy, if you look at his track record when he has played all the games, um, which has been, you know, the first three years of his career, you know, he missed some games two years ago because of an injury. He missed games last year because of the suspension and because he was benched. So, but when he plays 16 games and, and, and barring injury, he would do that because there's really nobody behind him that's going to challenge him like a Blaine Gabbert or, you know, Ryan Griffin. He, he has done very, very well. And so I think that he'll, you know, regardless of the record, I think he'll perform well enough to where somehow they're going to bring him back for another year. Now that might, at this point, since he's out of contract, that would have to be, you know, most likely a franchise tender, which is going to be a lot of money, but he's already making 20.1. So, you know, 25 um, with the salary cap going up about $10 million a year isn't prohibitive. It's not like, you know, you can't re-sign your quarterback or franchise him uh, for one season. So, you know, I, I don't think it's going to be a wholesale rebuild. I think that Bruce Arians is here um, regardless of what happens for a minimum of two to maybe three years. But you could see some changes after that. You know, anything after, I think, two years, if it doesn't work um, because of the age of, of Arians and, and just, you know, sort of the reason he's here, in my opinion, the reason this staff is here uh, is to salvage their franchise quarterback. They want to give Jameis Winston every single chance because of the investment they have in him to become that guy that they thought he would be when they took him number one overall in 2015. So um, that's a long-winded way of saying that uh, I don't think it's going to be a rebuild after one season because of the youth they have on this team. They just added more youth through the draft. Um, but I, I could see them in a better salary cap situation, which doesn't seem to be coming anytime soon. But I could see them you know, just continuing to add and, and try to make this group work at least for two years and then reassess after that. Less asked, and you kind of hit on it in the last answer, Rick, it's hard to believe a team this bad has salary cap issues. Franchise tag for Jameis Winston would be about $25 million guessing, and going up once Dak gets his deal. Will the Bucks be able to even afford him next year? They need so many pieces. See, and I don't think they do need so many pieces. I mean, I, I understand what, what, what you're saying, um, and it is this is not, this is not what the way the system's supposed to work, okay? If you look at the 2015 draft class, which was the best one Jason Light had, let's say – Let's say that's the start of this particular regime. And I know that they've had, you know, several coaches, beginning with Lovey Smith and Dirk Cutter. This is the third coach that that 2015 class had. But let's say, you know, and I know there was a draft before that with Lovey and they got Mike Evans and, and so on. But let's say, let's, let's look at 2015. So they had a great draft class, and that's sort of the core of the young guys they were going to build around. Jameis Winston, we, we know where he is as a player question mark, you know, all that stuff at the end of his, of his five-year deal. Uh, you had Donovan Smith, who they've just re-signed to, a, to an enormous extension, who's going to be here for a number of years. He made it sort of as, you would say, a franchise left tackle, for lack of a better term. You have Ali Marpet, who has signed a new deal a year ago. He's going to be your guard uh, or slash center, but he's going to be, you know, on that offensive line for a number of years. Uh, you know, uh, you, you sort of 
lost uh, a player in Adam Humphreys, right? Um, but you still have Cameron Brait, who came in during that time. And Cameron, you know, is a guy that's a core player. Uh, he is signed. You have O.J. Howard, who you drafted in the first round. So on offense, they're, they're sort of, you know, that, that core group of guys are going to be there. Now, do they make a lot of money? Yeah, they do. Uh, there are some older players that you're going to have to replace uh, just simply because of their age and, and maybe, you know, in, in part because of their salary. Guys like DeMar Dotson, I don't know how many more years he has. You have to draft and develop a young tackle. Maybe he's here. Maybe he's not. Maybe it's Caleb Beninoct. I don't know. Um, you know, and defensively, I think they continue to get younger. You know, we don't know what's going to happen to Jason Pierre-Paul, but even if he plays this year, I don't know that he's going to play the next season, right? Gerald McCoy could already be gone. I mean, you're starting to see some highly paid and some of the older players start to fall off. But it's very tough when you pay a quarterback $25 million, and I don't care what team you're talking about. That's an enormous chunk of the salary cap. That's why the best window to win is when your quarterback is, hasn't reached that second contract yet because you can do so much under the salary cap. You know, when you move from what Jameis did to, to you know, almost, you know, $20, 21000000 million, we've seen a huge bump with Mike Evans, who's going to make $20 million this year. So you're starting to get players in their fourth and fifth and second contracts, um, you know, that, quite frankly, are making a lot of money. I don't think, but I don't think it's a rebuild. Like you're not getting rid of that core. You're gonna have to find ways to draft and develop these young guys, and then mix them with that core that you had going back to 2015. They they should not have salary cap issues without winning. You're right about that. They they should have won by now. Uh, it didn't happen, and so that means you've had some bad drafts, and so you have to supplant those bad drafts with what free agents. You know, when you think about JPP, right, and the reason they traded for him, and he came with a big contract, well, that's because Noah Spence didn't work out. You know, I mean, part and parcel. I mean, you look at that and you say, well, they drafted an edge rusher, and he's not made it, and so now you have to go and make a trade or go into free agency to cover the mistake you made in the draft. And so that's why it's, this thing is sort of out of whack. Um, you know, and, and I just think that, you know, they're going to have to, uh, you know, Get younger, which means cheaper, which gives you more room under the salary cap. So some of these young guys are going to have to develop. You know, you talk about a guy like Vernon Hargraves. Vernon Hargraves is in his final year, and they picked up his fifth-year option. Well, that goes up to $9 million next year. So that's not going to help you on the cap, but that's not a rebuild. Um, you got to make a decision on him. If he doesn't make it, you say, okay, fine, we're done with Vernon Hargraves, and then his salary falls off, and then one of these younger players that you drafted this year takes over for Vernon. So – you know, he, he makes less money. He's got three or four years under your control. That's sort of how it's going to have to go. But, uh, you know, a rebuild? No, I don't, I don't think they tear everything up. Mike asked, since 2014, Jason Light has drafted only one edge rusher, Noah Spence, who you just commented on, but has drafted two kickers and two fullbacks. Why have pass rushers not been a priority for Jason Light in the draft? Well, I don't know. Um, I think, you know, he would tell you that it hasn't fallen right, quote unquote. Um, and what that means is, you know, a better player at another position was was rated more highly um, or the player that they really wanted. Maybe it was a defensive lineman uh, in, a, in a specific round, you know, went, uh, you know, went just before they, they were hoping to take him and he wasn't on the board. So they had to take another player. So, you know, I, I just think that it's, it's certainly been a mistake of Jason's not to address the defensive line. And just in terms of sheer numbers, 
You know, I, I had somebody I was talking to in the league the other day that told me something that made sense to me. He goes, you know, when you don't draft offensive linemen and you don't have a great offensive line, there are things you can do to protect them, right? In other words, well, we don't run, we can't run to the right very well, so you know we run to the left, or you know we we can't pass protect, so we throw the ball quick, or you know we can't do. In, in other words, you know you, you can slide protection to cover up a weak spot on the offensive line. You can keep tight ends in to cover up a tackle. You can do things right. But when you don't have a good defensive line, you're you're in trouble. I mean, you can't just manufacture that, right? Now, Todd Bowles is going to do it a little bit differently because he uses pressure when he can't get there with his defensive line, like any defensive coordinator, but he uses it schematically um, to move guys around and bring blitzes and bring pressure from all different angles, particularly even from his linebackers. Uh, you know, look, having to draft two kickers or deciding to draft two kickers not a smart thing. I mean, in general, there's, you know, teams, good teams don't do that. Now, there are teams that have drafted kickers uh, and been successful because they were special guys, whether you're talking about Sebastian Janikowski, who was, what, a first-round pick. Um, you know, that sort of thing does happen. Um, but in general, you know, not only did they use those draft picks on the kickers, but in the case of Aguayo, they used draft picks to get to the second round to take a kicker. So just in terms of sheer numbers, whether you're talking about um, you know, Stevie T, uh, Tui Kolovatu, or you're talking about, you know, Vita Vea, right? Noah Spence, they drafted, and then of course they, they drafted uh, a couple defensive linemen this year. But that's not um, really the investment in high, high draft picks other than Vea. So, and, and I know Spence was, was a second rounder, but he, he really wasn't a good fit. He hasn't been productive. So it was a bad pick. It's not, you can't just pick guys because you need them, but you have to pick good players, guys that make impacts. I don't know why Jason has um, ignored it. I mean, eventually, essentially, like I just mentioned with 2015, that the plan was when you took a quarterback number one overall in Jameis Winston, that you damn sure better go out and protect him and that you better put players around him so that he can be successful, so that he can leave your team. And if he can be successful, that will help your defense and it will help the other parts of your team. Uh, and they thought they could get by that way for a while until they had the time to address the defensive side of the ball. Um, and, you know, the, the ugly truth is is that they have a ton of talent on offense. And, and in many ways it's been productive. They had a top three offense last year. They were number one in passing offense a year ago. So those pieces, those draft picks have, have come to fruition in many ways. But the defense just never really got there. And we're going to find out how much of it is coaching and how much is talent because my suspicion is it's not a real talented defense, needless to say, particularly on the defensive line. If they're right about Vita Vea, it'll show up and show up fast this year. Um, you know, but there are, there are some pieces on defense, and I think there's more players than people realize. I just don't know that they're in the right spot. I think that the defensive line especially, I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today now with Jason Pierre-Paul and who knows what they do with Gerald McCoy. 
I think that's going to be a big story all year. And for a team that had those guys and were still giving up 29 points per game, you can't get them off the field. See, this is the problem. You can have a couple good players, but if you don't have enough up front, you keep giving up first downs, and then they wear down. And then a guy like Jason Pierre-Paul last year, you know, plays over a thousand snaps when really he should be, you know, in a rotation and staying fresh for the fourth quarter. So that's the problem, and and I'm not sure how how they're going to address it. Um, but you know, they should have done a better job. I think it's obvious of a, of addressing the defensive line over the years. All right, Rick, you mentioned JPP. So with the news about Jason Pierre-Paul. Who is the next man up? Is it Noah Spence, Carl Nassib, someone else? I would say it, it could could be somebody that's not even here yet, Steve. I mean, I think, look, it, they, they're going to have to get something of the out of the guys you just mentioned. I mean, Carl Nassib, I think you start with him just because he was so productive a year ago, six and a half sacks, you know, being claimed off waivers. He seems like an, a very athletic guy, plays really hard, um, can come off the edge, that sort of thing. And I, I think that he's going to be, you know, probably a guy they have to count on whether JPP was here or not. Um, as far as Noah Spence go, we, we talked about him a little bit. If he's going to have any kind of a career at all, he should fit this defense a heck of a lot better than he fit the 4-3 because uh, he's a smaller guy that can, you know, rush the passer and, and also drop into coverage. Shaq Barrett is somebody that they got as a free agent that's played with Bruce Arians and, and Todd Bowles before. He comes from uh, – I think he has – well, actually, no, Barrett has not. He came from Denver, but he's a, he's a one-year deal guy um, that had some sacks, learned a lot playing behind Von Miller and those guys in Denver, so they're, they're excited about him. You have Anthony Nelson, the rookie from Iowa. I think you're going to see a lot of him getting an opportunity to, to try to play uh, an end in the 3-4. I think they're excited about Kazim Daniels, who is, you know, the kid that was undrafted but – you know, he's a player that, uh, you know, if you remember the NFL Network story, blind in one eye, had over 30-something sacks in his last, um, you know, three seasons at a, at a Division II school at the University of Charleston. So he's somebody that's going to be in the mix. But really, you know, there's, there's some free agents that might become available after a couple weeks, certainly after they have their rookie mini camps, you know, across the NFL. But I almost think their best solution is to try to trade for a player. And I don't know who that player is. I mean, if you remember, we said earlier, JPP was someone that, that most people didn't think the Giants were looking to trade, and the Bucks made a deal, uh, and he came here. There could be other players like Jadavian Clowney from Houston that might become available in a trade. So we'll just have to see. But in my mind, no one's going to replace the 12 and a half sacks of J, JPP. I think that it's going to have to be a bunch of those players I just mentioned or – Somebody who's not on this roster. All right, well, rooting for UF asked, Gerald McCoy looks pretty lean. Any chance he moves to defensive end? McCoy is lean. He's as lean as I've seen him. He's a lean, mean sacking machine now, apparently. He's a guy that's certainly changed his body, his diet, all of that, and he's motivated. I don't think he's going to play an end position except maybe in a 3-4. You know, when you when you stand a guy up next to him, though, it, it becomes a 4-3 and uh, he's sort of in that three technique, if you will, uh, not unlike what he played, uh, you know, in the Bucks system. So, no, I don't think he's lean enough to, to just completely, you know, go outside and rush. I, I think the problem is is that, you know, that position now becomes an outside linebacker position. And so you have to have somebody who at times at least is able to 
you know, drop into coverage if you need him to. And that's not Gerald McCoy. Why would you take somebody with the kind of get off that he has uh, and move him outside and have to maybe, you know, drop into coverage at times? So I think it, it won't be McCoy, but it is it is a good observation that he has definitely changed his body. And, you know, the reports are that his knees feel better and, and he feels like he can play another three or four years. All right, Les kind of asked a off-the-beaten-path type question. But he mm-hmm. says, what's more egregious, the Bucks getting rid of Steve Young or the Falcons getting rid of Brett Favre? Wow, great question. I think they both had their reasons for doing it, but in my opinion, it would be that the Falcons getting rid of Brett Favre was a bigger mistake, and I'll tell you why. You know, when Steve Young was here, uh, this was a horrible football team, and nobody knew that he had the ability necessarily to play at the Hall of Fame level that he became with the San Francisco 49ers. And if you remember, uh, Bill Walsh is the guy that came and got him for a second and a fourth round pick and put him behind Joe Montana for about four years. And he had to learn the West Coast offense. He learned at the feet of the master out there in Montana. And it was an instant success for him. But then, of course, he went on to, to a Hall of Fame career and won a Super Bowl and all of that. With the Falcons, I'm not sure there was anybody, you know, coming up behind Brett Favre. I mean, Brett Favre was the guy that, uh, you know, that that they discovered, that they drafted. He had some really bad personal habits, I think, and they might have been concerned about that a little bit. But Jiminy Christmas, look what Brett Favre became. I mean, you know, he goes up there, and before long he's behind, what, Don Mikowski or whatever or whoever was at quarterback at that time and, you know, threw for more yards than anyone in football until – uh, like Peyton Manning or somebody passed him. I mean, he has so many NFL records and was, you know, just uh, the leader of that team up there and appeared in two Super Bowls, played for, you know, a ton of time. I mean, went to, the, of course, the Jets, got traded there, then the Vikings, got to an NFC championship, probably should have won it without a bounty on his legs. So I, I just – I look at the Falcons and I say, you know, what what quarterback came came behind Brett Favre? And then, you know, if you think about the Bucks, don't forget this, too. They changed coaches. Ray Perkins was the new coach who had the number one overall pick in the draft, right? And so they were going to go with Benny Testaverde, and they knew that. So they wanted a veteran backup behind him. And I believe at the time that, that, that guy might have become Steve DeBerg, if I'm not mistaken. So, you know, they weren't going to use – they weren't going to have two young quarterbacks at the same time and, and turn it into an open competition. So – it made sense that if you were going to take the guy number one overall, we saw, for example, we saw the Cardinals do that this year. You know, was it a mistake to trade Josh Rosen to the Miami Dolphins? Well, we'll find out what kind of career Josh Rosen has. If he goes to the Hall of Fame, it was a mistake. But they were taking a quarterback number one overall. You know, so Steve Young came from the USFL. Uh, it was a little different circumstance at that time. So I would say of those two, I would think that Brett Favre was a bigger mistake. All right, we'll switch to baseball now. And Matt Duffy's rehab isn't going as well as expected. Big shock. If he gets healthy in the next month or so, is there even a spot on the roster for him? Not sure if he has options left, but isn't it time we end the Matt Duffy experiment? Well, it's going to be ended one way or the other because if he can't get on the field, um, you know, you're not using him. And I think they've moved on sort of mentally, at least from Matt Duffy, with what uh, Yandy Diaz has done. Yeah, but he's not the only thick guy that can play third base, and Yandi can also play other positions. You know, because you have so many guys that are so versatile, uh, including Duffy to some extent, 
I think there's still room for him if he were to ever get healthy. Now it's you know it, it has to happen sometime. You can't go world without end at this point. But be, you know the Rays are going to have injuries where they could use a Matt Duffy at times in different situations. I don't know. I mean, what do you do? You just you just you know outright them and and you know you eat the money and say we're moving on. I mean. You don't know what's going to happen three months down the road, four months. You know, well, we only got like four months left. But you know, what if what if he were to get healthy and you you, you were to lose uh, Yandy Diaz or you were to lose Yandy and somebody else? I know you got Christian Arroyo and guys like this, but Matt Duffy, you know, for one half of last season was among the best hitters they had. Now he didn't hit with power, he didn't do a lot of things, and he wore down. Um, but I still think that you know he's a guy that could be a a veteran presence, somebody that could help them. I think they're willing to give him every chance this year. Beyond this year, I don't know what will happen to Matt Duffy. All right, Josh asked, reports on attendance seem to be a thorn of contention to fans for the Rays. While bad, aren't radio and TV audiences pretty high? With bad location and attendance and good viewership, doesn't it even out? Well, I think, look, the attendance thing is going to be a story right up until the time they pull the moving vans up and everybody wonders why they're leaving. I mean... Yeah, they do have good TV ratings. I would assume they have good radio ratings. But that that doesn't pay all the bills, you know. I mean, we've talked about this before where, you know, the problem with the stadium in St. Petersburg, in addition to the stadium, is probably the location. Uh, the lack of corporate support, you know, that that's where the bulk of your ticket sales should go, something like 60% or 70% um, should be bought by corporations. And then... You know, the rest by walk-up and fan season ticket holders. Instead, it's just the opposite, if not worse, uh, for the Tampa Bay Rays. So, um, you know, people – I know people get upset because the people that go to the game keep reading about, you know, best record in baseball, um, you know, season-low attendance of 8,024 or whatever. But they're not talking about the people that go to the games. They're talking about all the people that don't, you know. And it's funny because those ratings are so good, you know that there's a real appetite and a real interest in Rays baseball – but how do you get those people that are watching on TV to actually come to the game? Um, it doesn't seem to matter if they win or they lose. Uh, you know, the years that they went to the playoffs, four out of six years, they were still, you know, last or next to last in attendance. And when they lost, it, you know, winning or losing, you know, with other teams, it goes up and down based on that, right? We, we've seen, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, Kansas City who's had some empty ballparks, but when they were winning, you know, they, they, they jammed the place. So there's very few places like Chicago or St. Louis where it doesn't seem to matter. You're always going to sell 3 million tickets. But in the case of the Rays, they're that franchise that where winning doesn't matter in terms of attendance. And that's the sad thing. That's the thing um, that really hurts. So, you know, radio and TV, I think that's important to, to Major League Baseball in terms of the market share, in terms of, you know, where, uh, you know, where the uh, population is moving, which is certainly to the south and to Florida and in, in particular to central Florida. So they want to attract as many baseball fans in this area as they can, which is why I think that baseball, you know, definitely wants, in my opinion, the Rays to remain here. But, um, yeah, it's going to take more than just TV ratings, I think. I think it is important that people actually go to the ballpark, and I think it starts with a stadium, and it's still unresolved right now. All right, rooting for UF asked a second question. He says, I don't recall that 20 years ago every ball pitched into the dirt was tossed out. Am I misremembering? If I'm not, why the change? I think it's a great question. I'm not sure of the change. Um, I, I would imagine that, you know, hitters want, want a white baseball to hit. And, you know, if you let them get scuffed up and they start getting spots on them, do you know if those spots are from the dirt? Uh, 
or you know the turf or are they from a foreign substance that the pitchers are putting on the ball and I think there's a keen awareness of you know guys using you know things to to put on the baseball and so you know the best way to to sort of police that is to have a white ball I I agree with them I don't remember them tossing balls out you know what's interesting about that is that there'll be a pitch that might scrape the dirt before it hits the catcher's mitt and they'll throw it out but then a guy can bash one to the infield and they throw to first base and that ball's still in play you know, so like if a guy ropes one off the dirt to the shortstop and he throws him out, that ball goes right back to the pitcher. So I've never really understood that, frankly. But I guess you can't use a new ball on every pitch. But uh, the ones they can control, they try to. Of course, speaking of the Rays, they begin their series against the New York Yankees. Tonight, it'll be Domingo German, who is and 6-1 for the Yankees against, of course, the unbeaten Tyler Glass now, the AL Pitcher of the Month uh, for April, and then you have on Saturday the Yankees will go with CC Bathia against the Rays opener, and then likely Yanni, Yanni Chirinos, I would imagine. And then Sunday, mm-hmm. Masahiro Tanaka against uh, the Rays ace Blake Snell. So great pitching max- matchups all over the weekend. The trop will be full, it will be rocking, even though most of them might be Yankee fans. Mark Topkin wrote a story in the Tampa Bay Times about that and about the weirdness of how you know the Rays sort of have a, a home field disadvantage at times. And especially with respect to the Yankees, Red Sox too, but the Yankees, of course, train here in Tampa. Um, so that's a big deal when they, anytime they come, come south, a lot of them live here and uh, it's, it's certainly their spring home. Uh, good news for the Rays. It looks like they may have Austin uh, Meadows back, who was, you know, just on fire, one of their big RBI guys and a guy that can lead off bat anywhere in the lineup, but a nice left-handed bat um, to help them uh, for this homestand. So, it's going to be good. You know, I think this is a big opportunity, Steve, because, you know, the last time they uh, played the Red Sox, who weren't playing very good baseball, uh, they had a chance to come here and do some stuff, and the Red Sox wound up sweeping them in three games. You don't want to get swept now because the Rays will be, you know, enter this game depending on, on the outcome as we tape this broadcast of the Yankees game at Seattle or against Seattle. But they'll either be, um, you know, what one or one and a half games or two and a half game lead by the time they get here right so if the yankees sweep this weekend they will take over first place otherwise the rays will keep first place if you just win one game but you know eric neander and topkin mark topkin talked about it yesterday on the podcast has said you know we're going to start to see how good this team really is now that they're going to face some better teams as you've got the yankees for the next two weekends you're going to play the indians the twins soon um you know you're going to start playing a lot more better teams consistently so you know, it's really time to size up exactly how good the Rays are, but it's also a measuring stick for the Yankees, too. I mean, while they've been hurt and had, you know, 13 players on the injured injured list, they've been beaten up on all the bad teams in baseball. You know, the schedule's been kind to them as they've been hurt, and, and they've done what they're supposed to do is you win those games. So, you know, this is kind of a measuring stick for the Yankees as well. Yeah, I mean, just to that point, the Yankees currently have more than $100 million worth of players on the I.L. Think about that. <laughs> I mean, when you consider that the Rays payroll is is you know half of that, and they have that many, they have twice as many uh, players you know earning that kind of money that's on the IL right now. It's really, really remarkable that they have uh, they have managed to do that. So, uh, you know, the Yankees have not done very well against teams that are currently in first or second place in the division. They're just a combined uh, four and seven so far this year. So they beat up on some bad teams, uh, but when you look at it and you consider that. Uh, you know the the guys that, that that are on the IL for them, uh, it's it's just really amazing that they've they've managed to even stay this close to the top 
of the ALE standing. So it'll be a good series. It'll be, uh, I think, a good atmosphere no matter who's in the ballpark. It'll probably have some sellouts or close to it, 20, what, 24,000 people or so, which uh, will certainly be a departure from what they've had lately. So looking forward to that series. It's always good when the Yankees and the uh, Rays get together. First of 19 games they have not played yet this season, which is kind of remarkable, and they'll play a couple series here uh, in very short order. I'll be at uh, Bucks Minicamp. That begins today over there at the Advent Health Training Facility. Interesting name uh, in a bunch of them, of course, uh, both undrafted free agents, rookies that we know about they drafted. Uh, but here's one that's a tryout player, Vinny Testaverde, Jr. That's right. That's uh, Vinny's son. If you recall, he went to the University of Miami uh, for a little while. He transferred from there, finished up his career at Albany, I want to say he started like eight games, averaged, I don't know, close to 220 yards passing per game at Albany, did a nice job up there. And so here we are, 32 years apart from when Benny Testaverde walked in uh, in a Bucks uniform as the number one overall pick out of the University of Miami for the Tampa Bay Bucks. And now uh, his son will get an opportunity to put on, uh, you know, the Bucks uniform and go out there and, and try to earn – you know, one of one of the four spots because they'll bring four quarterbacks, most likely one young guy to training camp, along with uh, the three quarterbacks that they have on the roster right right now, and Jameis Winston, and Blaine Gabbert, and Ryan Griffin. So, uh, who knows? Maybe uh, Vinny Testaverde will be able to stick around for the summer anyway. So, we'll be writing about him. I'm going to be writing on Sunday about a guy named Cousin Daniels from the University of Charleston. Division II school, outstanding pass rusher, over 30, I think 31 to 32 sacks the last three years. Comes from a New Jersey high school and then went to a uh, uh, to an academy after that. And, uh, you know, the big story about him is, uh, and nobody knew this really, it wasn't advertised until a few weeks before the draft, he's totally blind in his right eye. He's a guy that, you know, had an accident when he was five years old, hasn't affected him in sports, inspiring story. Uh, about how he's overcome this disability and how he's helping others uh, to understand that they can overcome it too. So, uh, and right now with the situation with JPP, this guy has a real chance to maybe you know get invited to training camp and continue on and maybe even earn a spot on the team. So, look forward to that in Sunday's Tampa Bay Times. Hey, great questions in the mailbag. We appreciate each and every one of them. Thanks for listening to this podcast. We'll be back to you. On Monday, for Steve Versnick, I'm Rick Stroud of the Tampa Bay Times. Have a great weekend, everybody. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.